We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead and show us what you would want us to see from all of this, that your Holy Spirit will be with us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 1. We're going to see the first big recorded problem of the church, first century church. And it's kind of an interesting thing because a lot of people look and go, we want to be like the first century church. It had no problems. You know, but we see all kinds of problems recorded in the Bible. Uh, Paul's letters were addressing problems in the church. They had just as many problems as we had and, and that we have. And the same problems, pretty much. So we're going to see the first big problem of the church. In those days, when the number of disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministrations. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples together unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God to serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look you out for seven men, honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry, ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch, whom they set over the, before the apostles. And when, and when they had prayed, they laid the hands on them. And the word of the Lord increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. So here we see this first really big problem, and it's kind of an interesting thing. It says, in those days, and the disciples multiplied, there arose a murmuring. And I want to stop with just murmuring. There was not an idea of, we've got a problem, come. Murmuring is always something that starts below the surface. And Satan tries to use murmuring to divide and split people up. And all, if you look back into the Exodus, the people murmured. They murmured. You know, we don't, you know, they were standing outside the Red Sea and the Egyptians, and they started murmuring, you brought us out here to kill us. There wasn't enough graves in Egypt, so you brought us here. They get across the Red Sea, and they get a little thirsty, and they start murmuring. And this is something that we have to be careful of, and we need to be very careful that we don't add to anybody's murmuring. We need to be able to say, you know, if there's a problem, let's get it out in the open. Somebody obviously did because the disciples are going to hear about it. But, you know, so many times churches are split because of the murmuring that goes on underneath. Somebody gets their feelings hurt. Somebody is not happy about something. And they start murmuring and people listen. And before long, people are taking sides. <laughs> and splitting up. This one got up, and the problem in this one is between the Greek Hebrews, all right, not the Grecians, but the Greek Hebrews, the ones that weren't born in Israel. They were born somewhere else, and they'd come. These particular ones speak Greek. They don't speak Aramaic, and they're living in Jerusalem. They probably speak Aramaic, but that's not their native tongue as opposed to those that are considered the Hebrews. So don't, don't get in mind that there's two different groups here. There's not Greeks and Gentiles and Hebrews here. They're Hebrews that are born somewhere else, that are what was called Hellenist. All right? They spoke Greek. They kind of thought more Greek than, than the rest of them, and they were living in Jerusalem. They'd come back to Jerusalem, but they were... Even though they were real, true Jews, they were born Jews, they were almost second-class citizens to the, to the uh, Jews of Israel. These people were not native-born. They, they were born of Jewish families. And so they came in, and they said that their widows were being neglected in the daily passing out of food and help. Now, we don't know if this was true. It could have been, though, because there was this whole idea that these are second-class citizens in, in there. 
Was it something that was planned? I don't believe. But there could have been this little thing, we're not going out of our way to help these Hellenist Jews. Um, and there's nothing in here to tell us that it was, because look at the first word, it was murmuring. And how many times do people perceive a problem and cause a problem with their murmuring? And there's nothing there to tell us that it was or wasn't, but it was perceived to be, which is just as bad. If a, whether a problem is a real problem or not, if people are complaining about it, it becomes a real problem in the process. The disciples are going to take care of this. I mean, they, they look at it and they, they understand that there's something going on, but they don't have the time to deal with it, so they call the church together. And they go, and it's kind of an interesting thing. It says, they said, it is not reasonable for us to leave serving the word to wait tables <laughs> or to stand around passing out stuff. Because you got to think, this probably took most of the day to pass out materials to the widows. We don't know how many widows there are, but in the Jewish community, the widows were taken care of first by their family, and if they didn't have family, then they would go to the synagogues or the temple and be taken care of by the offerings and stuff that were given there. So the church is doing the same thing. We've got widows. They've got no family to take care of them. We will take care of them. And they were doing this, so there is a possibility that certain widows were being treated better than others. Maybe the Hellenistic Jews didn't even know, uh, Jewish, Jewish families didn't know that they were supposed to show up to be taken care of. We don't know what's going on, but there's a perception that there's a problem. And the disciples are going, uh, we're pretty busy here. We're teaching in the synagogue, every, we're teaching in the temple every day, we're preaching in the homes at night. Now Satan is trying to stop what's going on. And this is something that Satan does. Every time the church moves forward, Satan will come in and try to cause problems. And this is the first problem that he's showing up. Yeah, hey, you know, your, widow, your, your, your widows aren't being taken care of. They're being ignored. And the split is, a, is a, a possibility at this point. He's trying to break up the church and cause problems. And this is something we need to be very careful of ourselves, that we don't listen to murmuring. Because Satan likes to stay under the radar. So is why I mentioned today, all the stuff that's going on in our world is motivated and controlled in the bottom line by Satan. You know, he is getting people to move in different directions without them recognizing. I'm not saying they're demon-possessed or anything like that, but he is, he is the master behind everything. When we look at the things and we say, wow, it looks like there is an order and, and design behind it, there is. <laughs> the people who are involved don't know that there is because the one that's masterminding it is in the spiritual world. And he is masterminding all these problems against God, against this world. And here we see him trying to mastermind a problem in the church. And the disciples get together and they go, well, we have this great idea. And why they pick seven, I don't know. <laughs> seven people to minister for lots and lots of people, I don't know. But they, pick, they say, go out and find seven men that are full of the Holy Spirit, honest report, and with wisdom that we can assign to this business. This is great wisdom on their part. We're going to find some people to take care of this business and take care of these widows. And the, you know, it's kind of interesting to go find people that are of honest report, you know, that you trust. These guys have a good reputation. Go find us men with good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, saved, really following God, and have wisdom. And you know, this uh, it says they, they, this made the people. Uh, and then it says, and we will continue in prayer in the ministry of the word. This is an area that many times pastors get wrapped up in. They get so busy in the day-to-day -day operation of the church that they forget to study. 
they forget to, to preach, they forget to teach, or run out of time to te preach and teach. I've seen some pastors go, I just don't have enough time. Well, maybe you should give away some of the jobs you're doing to other people. And this is important. You know, this is where the church stands up and says, we're going to help our leaders and step up and do things. But the disciples have some wisdom here. They're preaching, look, apparently, seven days a week by what we just read in, chapter, in, in the previous chapter in 42, that they're preaching daily in the temple and they're preaching in homes every night. And they're going, hey, we can't stop this. Our job is to preach. <laughs> Our job is to teach. We can't be involved in this giving away the food every day. And it says the people were really pleased with what they suggested. It sounded good to them. Because ultimately, they didn't want their leaders to stop teaching. They were being taught every day of the week. And if they got them so busy doing other things, they did not want that. And you know, what ends up happening most oftentimes when people are murmuring and complaining, they're not necessarily wanting to stop what's going on, but they want a problem fixed that they perceive to be a problem. And so here we have our two groups, and we see the prejudice trying to come into the church. We've got the, the national-born Jews and the imported Jews, for, a better, for lack of a better term, the, the Hellenist Jews, the Greek Jews, and the regular-born Jews right in Jerusalem. And there's that prejudice coming out, and, and Satan is trying to stir it up. Satan is always trying to divide, always trying to keep people separate. And this is what's going on even in our world today. Satan is trying to divide everybody, keep everybody separate. Why do we have so many denominations? People ask it all the time. Why do we have so many denominations? Because Satan successfully divided churches over stupid issues, and then they would divide, and then somewhere along the line, those churches would divide because of really stupid issues, and there's not a whole lot of difference between all the different denominations. Now, there's a handful that have some really strange you know, beliefs, but they're not critical if we were just to focus on Jesus and the word. And usually when, when you can get those people to talk about it, they're really not that far apart in the first place. They can be able to worship together and just focus on what is important, and that's Jesus and the Word. And yet, Satan is always working to divide, always working to keep everybody separate. Because just as we said this morning, if we're kept separate, we're easier to be taken out. If we're not with other people, when we fall, we have nobody to pick us up. When we fall, we have nobody to notice. This is the problem I'm seeing on this idea of virtual church that's coming out so much because of the COVID-19. All right, yes, you can get fed, but when you fall, who's there to know that you've fallen? You know, you have all your friends are around the world, <laughs> supposed friends, but nobody's there to know that you have fallen to say, uh, we've missed you. We haven't seen you for a while. We need to make sure we keep assembling together and following. And here, Satan is trying to split, split the church. And so we see here the first deacons that they, put to, they pull together. They choose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And we're going to learn about Stephen. He's going to be the first martyr. They picked Philip and Prochus and Nicanor and Timnon and Parnius and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch and proselyte means that he became a Jew. He's not a born Jew. Okay, proselyte means he's changed religions. And many times in in the world, especially nowadays, if you're in a Muslim country, they have laws against proselytizing, which means if you convert somebody who's a Muslim in most of those countries, you can be killed for for your proselytizing. And huh? Antioch a city. Yeah. He's a, he's a converted Jew, a converted uh, probably Greek because Antioch is, or Assyrian, um, and he was converted to uh, Judaism, and, uh, and now he's become a Christian. <laughs> or they're not Christians yet, but he's become a follower of the way. Of these names, we don't know a whole lot about any of these guys. 
All right, we know about Stephen, and he's going to die in, in the next chapter. He's going to be the first recorded Christian martyr. And Nic uh, Nicholas is somebody who's under contention. Many of the church, early church fathers, say that he fell away from Christianity and is the founder of the Nicolaitans that are mentioned in uh, Revelation chapter 2. There's not a lot of evidence for it other than their writing. So we don't know, and there's not a lot of proof on it. But I just mentioned that that way if you hear, hear ever hear that he's the one that fell away and started that, you'll, you'll know that it's been mentioned. I can't say yes or no. There's no proof on it no, other than about four or five of them that said that he is, he is the one that fell away and started the Nicolaitans. Uh, and if you don't remember who the Nicolaitans are, they're in Revelation 2, 6, and 15, uh, where Jesus said that, you know, commented about the Nicolaitans. It was a false doctrine, a lot of false doctrine, and somebody had fallen away and started it. Um, is there any proof on that? We can't definitively say that, but when, when your early church fathers start saying things like that, you have to give some credence to their words. Once they picked these men, they said in verse 6, whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them. Now this is something that we talk about frequently, laying hands on people. In Numbers chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 10. And you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall put their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord for an offering to the, of the children of Israel, and they, that they may execute the service of the Lord. And the Levites shall lay their hands upon the heads of the bullocks, and they shall offer one for a sin offering, and the other for the burnt offering unto the Lord to make an atonement for the Levites. And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and before the sons, and offer them as an offering unto the Lord, you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after this, the Levites shall go and do service in the congregation of the tabernacle. God says when, you, when somebody is designated for service, you lay their hands on it, symbolic of bringing the blessing upon people. Uh, when they gave a blessing... When they gave a blessing upon people in the Old Testament, they would place their hand on them and bless them. Uh, if you remember when, when Joseph brought his two sons before Jacob to be blessed, he put the oldest son to Jacob's right hand and the younger one to his left hand so that he would be able to touch both children. And he got mad because his dad crossed his arms <laughs> to bless them, but it involved the touching. And the idea is that that touch transfers power, figuratively, figuratively transfers power. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, 9, it talks about uh, Joshua having his, been Moses laying his hands on Joshua to transfer the being in charge of the people. Okay, before Moses died, he, he laid his hand on Joshua and, and and gave him his prayer. And Joshua, at that time, it says that he got filled with the spirit that Moses had. So he was filled to be the leader. And so this is something, when, when they talk about this, this is something that was done all the time in Judaism. That they would, for the blessing, for the transference of power, the deacons, they placed their hands on him, and it was figuratively saying, we are empowering you to be in charge. All right. In Second uh, Timothy one six, Paul says, "I want to read that one." Six. Wherefore I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God which was in you by putting on of my hands. So Paul's saying, "I recognize that you had a gift from God. I placed my hands upon you and gave you the blessing." And again, the idea here is that when you gather somebody around and you touch them, you're empowering, you're, you're giving credence, you're, you're bringing the Holy Spirit on. And we're told, you know, that in James it says, call the elders and have them lay hands on the sick that they will be healed. 
there is a valuable part to that because it is symbolic. It, you know, yes, I can, you know, Jesus was able to, the centurion told Jesus, you don't have to come and touch my, you know, my servant to be healed, just speak the word and he'll be healed. We can just speak the word and people will get healed, but there is the sim- symbolism involved in touching. Most of the time, Jesus touched the people because that's what they expected. The Jewish people expected that the touch was a transference of power. It was, and that's why he was marveling at the centurion's faith. You know, he understood authority. He understood the power. And here they put their hands on these men to transfer power and authority. And we see it even, even today. You know, if you think about the king, you know, a king back in the days of the knights, and they would give them their blessing, but they touched them with the sword. It's been around forever that the touch transfers authority and power. And we see this here happening. And then because of all of this, the word of the Lord increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. Satan tried to split the church and when oppression comes on the church and it's handled correctly, the church grows. Even if it's not handled correctly, it still will grow. Usually what ends up happening, if a church does split, like this one was going to be in the process of pos- usually you get two churches that grow. <laughs> you know, they got some problems, but they both grow. And this is God being involved will cause growth. And we see strength. And we all know that when we go through trials and tribulations, we grow. Whether we fail or whether we pass it. We pass it and it's better but we fail, we still grow if we don't, if we don't fall, fall away. Because I learn. I learn from my mistakes, hopefully. And I don't make the same mistake the second time if I'm really, really learning. But the church will always grow, even in the midst of tribulation. And this is what we see here. And then it just says, and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. The priest. We want to understand the priest taught in the temples and served in the temple. They knew the word of God. And so these guys are presenting that the Messiah has come. And they bring the teaching to them. And this word for obedient literally means to hear and obey. Okay? They heard the message that the Messiah has come. And they make the conversions which is not going to make the high priest very happy because he is not on the Messiah's side. <laughs> the high priest is the one that has crucified Jesus, been re- responsible for crucifying Jesus. He's been making life difficult for them. He beat, the, he beat Peter and John. He's, he's not happy and he's losing his other Levi, Levitical Aaron, Aaron's priest. All right? So again, we're seeing this problem. The high priest is in charge. He, has, he is more political than anything else. He's not really religious at this point in time. He's political. At least his allegiance is political. And he's seeing his power base falling apart. He is not going to be happy with this. When somebody is in a political frame of mind and they see things happening, they don't like it. And they will react. And this is why we as Christians need to keep in mind John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. Remember before Jesus showed up, he was drawing huge crowds in in a following. When he saw Jesus and his disciples came to him and said, you know, hey, this other guy's taking all your disciples. Saying, okay, that's fine. He must increase, I must decrease. And this is important for us as Christians. If we make ourselves the focus and we take pride in what we're doing, we're in the wrong side. We're not lifting Jesus up. But if God says he's done with us for the time being, then we go, okay, God, you're raising this person up. Let it happen. We cannot be jealous of God raising up somebody else. Because if we are, we end up splitting things. 
And I've seen this happen too, where somebody gets jealous of somebody else, you know, and they start attacking the other person. Well, you know, hey, God, you, you know, you're supposed to be using me. You can't, you know, that person's got some problems, you know, and they'll start pointing out all the problems. We all have plenty of problems. We all have plenty of problems to have pointed out at us. And here, the, the priests are coming into the church and making, a great, and it says a great company. I don't know how big a great company is, but it says a lot. <laughs> A lot of them are switching over to follow the Messiah. And we want to keep in mind the Christian church, when it started, was considered Jewish. All right? It was considered Jewish. And it was called the sect of the way. Coming from when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. They were considered followers of the way. And they were Jewish. Why was, it, why was that very important? Israel had given up to Rome without a fight. Part of their agreement with Rome is that they would be able to practice Judaism under Roman rule. If the Christian church had started as a separate religion from the very beginning, it would have been crushed because Rome did not allow religions. You could be emperor worship, you could do all these other things, but they didn't just allow religions to happen. But Israel had made an agreement, we'll surrender to you, but we need to be Jewish. We need to worship in the temple. Christianity, when it first started, fell under the umbrella of Judaism so that it was protected in its early days of starting. And it worked out very well because they were being protected. And they were Jewish. The, the disciples did no intention of breaking from Judaism. They were worshiping the Messiah. <laughs> all right, So they had no intention of breaking from Judaism at all. Matter of fact, they weren't even witnessing to Gentiles yet. They were only wish, with, with witnessing to other Jews at this point in time. And it's not until Peter go, gets told by God to go speak to Cornelius that they finally have the first one that intentionally goes out to talk to a Gentile. And we see the issues with that. You know, Peter is called on the, on the carpet by the other disciples when he goes to witness to Cornelius, and we'll talk about him later, but they, they call him and go, who, what do you think you're doing going to a Gentile? It bothered them. They didn't like the idea of going to Gentiles because they had totally bought into the idea that there was a separation between Jews and Gentiles and that God had no interest in Gentiles. They didn't fully understand the word of God. You know, all through the, the Pentateuch, God said, you know, hey, the Gentiles are allowed to worship. The Gentiles are allowed to do these. The Gentiles are allowed to, to give sacrifice. But over the years, the Gentiles and the Jews had been totally split. And in their day, Gentiles weren't even allowed past the court of women. So they weren't even allowed to go in where you could worship. They weren't allowed to go into the temple, temple proper and, and be able to offer sacrifices. And the, or the Jewish disciples had, our, had, had that same attitude at first. You know, and we're going to see that attitude changing as, th as time goes on. But that was their attitude. Gentiles were born to go to hell. And our Jewish disciples at this point in time in the, in the book of Acts had that attitude. You know, Gentiles, nope, you've got to become Jews to, to be able to, to follow the Messiah because the Messiah was the king of the Jews. <laughs> okay, we've got to put ourselves in their thought processes here. Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah is in command of the Jews. Yes, he's going to rule everybody, but everybody else is going to come to him as servants, as a conquered foe. All right, this is their mindset. They're not ready for Gentiles yet. <laughs> God has to work on their heart to get them ready for Gentiles, which is why it's so amazing when Paul goes to Gentiles, especially as a member of, as a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, he would have been steeped in this whole idea that Gentiles weren't worthy of being saved. And yet God calls him, and he knows the word well enough for God to go in and say, this is what you know, the Gentiles are called. And I'm sure God pointed out to him all those verses that said, these sacrifices were for all. These sacrifices were for all. And God got into his heart to say, 
go to Gentiles. And you know, we've got to really, you know, it's hard for us as Gentiles, 2,000 years removed from the start of the church, to understand what a big deal this was for them. This was totally mind-blowing to them that you might ever talk to a Gentile and that a Gentile would become a Christian, you know, would be a follower of the Messiah because the Messiah was the king of the Jews. So we want to keep this in mind as we read through this because we think as Gentiles, well, the church always brought Gentiles in. Not at first. All these people that are coming to it are Jews, changing rabbis, <laughs> changing who they're following. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertarians, and the Cyrenians, and the Alexandrians, and the Sicily of, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. I'm going to stop there for just a moment because there's a lot in that. Stephen goes out and he's preaching. Okay? He's a deacon and yet he's doing as much teaching as the disciples apparently from this. And it said he was full of power, completely full. This is the same word that we talk about being full and overflowing. He was completely full of faith and power. And he's doing wonders and miracles, which means he's having healings. He's having all kinds of things happen around him. Uh, there's not much difference between Stephen and the apostles going out. He's not an apostle. He's been, he's been raised up. He was called to be a deacon, but he has power. And God is using him in great ways. And he's doing all these miracles. He's praying for people. They're getting healed. And he's talking to somebody. Now, whether he goes to their synagogue or these are the members of the synagogues coming to him is a, is a question. We don't, we don't know why these groups are coming against him. All right? A synagogue, just so we have some definition of what a synagogue is. A synagogue is a place of worship for the Jews. If you had 10 or more men in your following, you could have a synagogue. In Jerusalem, at the time of the disciples, there were at least 480 synagogues in the city of Jerusalem. We would say they're equivalent to churches. What happens in a synagogue? The people would get together. The Pentateuch was broken up into 52 readings, and you would read the entire Pentateuch over the year. You would read, you'd read the Pentateuch, you'd read, you'd read something from the prophets, and then somebody from the synagogue or an invited guest would come, and they would expound upon it. In, um, in Jesus' time, we had that time when he went to the, to the synagogue up in uh, Nazareth, and he read the book of, they read the book of Isaiah, and he was the guest speaker that day. And he expounded on the book of Isaiah. This is what happened in the synagogue. Usually you'd have one or two leaders in the synagogue, but anybody in the synagogue could be the one that spoke or who visited. This is why Paul got to speak in so many synagogues each day because he was a recognized rabbi. He could come in and say, he's walking into a synagogue with their 10 or 20 people or whatever they had in there and say, you know, introduce himself, I'm Rabbi, I'm rabbi Paul. And by just saying that, he would be asked to speak most of the time because most of the synagogues didn't have an official rabbi. So he would come into town and he would be asked to speak. He was a teacher. He was a recognized teacher in the Jewish religion, and he'd be asked to speak because that's what they did. They were always looking for speakers <laughs> that were trained. And we have here the libertarians, the libertar liber libertines, came from Rome. They, were, they had gone into Rome into captivity, and then they were freed by, by Caesar, I forgot to write it down, Pompeius, I think it was. And so they were free. And what they had done is because they visited Jerusalem at least three times a year because they were good Jews, they came during all the feast, they had built their own synagogue in Jerusalem along with many of these other groups that are in here, this, the, the uh, 
Cyrians, which were from Cyprus, the Alexandrians, which were from Alexandria, Egypt, and from Sicily and from Asia. All of these groups would come in, and just as happens in today's world, people that think alike like to be together. All right, so these guys were coming, well, we all speak the same language, you know, we're kind of Egyptian in our thought, you know, the Alexandrians were, were Egypt in our thinking, we speak Egyptian, yes, we, and when we, so when we go to Egypt, when we go to Jerusalem to worship, we want to be with other Egyptian thinking uh, Hebrew people. So they built their own synagogues, and somehow this group of people had a problem with Stephen. Now, I'm not sure what their problem was. He was preaching the Messiah. So they may have just been coming in to show their, their purity in, in Jewish doctrine. No, we know that he's not the Messiah because of whatever. They could be saying their zeal. You know, who is this guy talking about the Messiah? And, and they're, peeling off the, they're peeling off the priest. They're, they're, they're causing a commotion here. Uh, all of Jerusalem seems to be switching switching, switching uh, rabbis here to this new, this new rabbi. What their reasoning was doesn't get told to us. But this group of people, groups of people, <laughs> come up against them. For the Roman ones, they're thinking like Rome. For the Alexandrians, they're thinking like the, the Alexandrian. Um, in Alexandria was one of the great libraries of knowledge that was stored, where all these books and stuff were stored. They prided themselves on their knowledge. So I can understand the Alexandrians coming in there. Rome has the same thing. Well, we're from Rome. We, we are intelligent. We follow, we follow all these, these sayings. So we got these groups that are a little bit of pride in, in them. We can, we can outdo them. And it says they were not able to resist or withstand the wisdom and spirit by which he spoke. Now, we said that they, uh, in the last part of nine, I forgot this, he, they were disputing with him. This word dispute was not necessarily they were arguing with him. It was they were reasoning, debating. All right, and they were finding out they could not win the debate. Testing. testing him. More, more the idea of debate. Here's what you're saying. Here's what we say. All right, the reasoning with him, trying to get him to, to admit that they're right. All right, it's not this, we're having a big brawl. <laughs> That's not the kind of dispute we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah, they're, 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 they're debating. They're, you know, arguing, but don't get into the idea of physical argument here. They were just, they were having verbal debates, and Stephen was winning <laughs> all the debates, which is, I wanted to set that up as we get into this next section, because it's important to set up what's happening here. All right, verse 11. Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him before the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs of Mo that which Moses delivered to us. And all that sat in council, looking steadfastly upon him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So they are losing the battle. They are not able to win the debate. And just as we see today... When somebody is losing a verbal debate or discussion, they attack the person. And this is happening all the time in our world. You can't win the argument, so you attack the person and call them names. And this is what's going on all the time. And, and it happens both on, on both sides of the spectrum. Uh, I've got several of my conservative friends that I, you know, I tell them, quit name calling. We have the strong argument. Don't need to name call people. And, you know, the problem is we hear some of the conservative talk show hosts always name-calling people. 
you know, calling them names. And we've got to stop that. We're, if you've got the strength and, you're, and you've got the argument on your side, you don't have to resort to this. And they're dropping. They, they can't win the battle, so they decide we can't win the battle. We now have to try to get rid of the person. And it says they suborned. They bribed. <laughs> All right. They bribed or induced people to be false witnesses. And they, they said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. I am absolutely sure that uh, Stephen was not speaking blasphemy or words against Moses, especially not at this point of their, of their career. They're, they're, they're still looking at, at Moses and the law being important. They're Jews. Right? They're following Jewish law. They're offering their sacrifices. They're going to the temple every day. They're doing what they need to be doing. And they're definitely not going to blasphemy God. But the argument is, and what is this? We're attacking him. This man is really bad. He's, he's violating everything that we hold sacred. And they're stirring up the crowd to no longer care about facts. And this is the problem that happens when you attack the person personally and start calling them names and start, start attacking their character. There comes a point where it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. You stir up a riot, and this is what's happening. They're stirring up a riot at this point in time. And it says they stirred up. <laughs> All right? They are whipping the crowd into a frenzy. The previous time we saw a crowd whipped up into a frenzy in the Bible was when Jesus was arrested. And they stirred up the crowd into a frenzy to cry, crucify him. You know, matter of fact, they cried, give us, give us Barabbas, the murderer, murdering terrorist, and rather than Jesus, who's been healing people. Now, they didn't put him in those words, but they'd stirred the crowd up that they were ready to take a terrorist rather than the man who had been doing good things. So they're building up this problem. And the interesting is they get the elders and the scribes involved in this. Now, the scribes already don't like them. They're the, they're the teachers of the law. They've been beat by Jesus. They've been beat by all these prophets, uh, you know, Peter and John. They're, they've been losing battle after battle. And why did they lose the battle? Because the Holy Spirit was speaking through people. This is the beautiful thing when we go out and we witness. We go out and we teach. We go out and we share God. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we end up bringing conviction to people. We end up having people's lives get changed because the Holy Spirit is doing the work. The Holy Spirit spoke through Peter and John at the council. The Holy Spirit is speaking through uh, Stephen amongst these people. And it stirs up contention. And it says they caught him. Now this word kind of sounds like it's, in, you know, uh, they were playing tag or something, but this literally means they seized him by force. In other words, they arrested him. <laughs> All right? It doesn't say necessarily to put him in chains or anything, but they grabbed him out of the middle of this group and arrested him and brought him to the council. The council would be the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is being met again. This poor Sanhedrin is being busy. You know, they just met when Jesus was, was uh, arrested and crucified. They met just a couple chapters ago with John and, uh, Peter and John in the, in the temple. Now they're meeting again for, for Stephen. And I don't know if they met every day, but these Christians keep getting brought before the council, the Sanhedrin. And they set up false witnesses. This is very interesting, false witnesses. When you went before the, the Sanhedrin... To be convicted, you had to have two witnesses that said the same thing. Now, these guys have bribed and, bribed and induced people to speak words. But you want to note, the original words that they said, they speak against Moses and against God. In this one, they says, we, these men don't cease to speak blasphemy words against this holy place and against the law. So... This holy place could either mean Jerusalem or the temple, probably the temple, 
and against the law, which is the same thing as Moses for all practical purposes. And part of it is that they equated the temple with God, but they're talking about the temple. Now, and then it says, for we have heard them say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now, the first one, Jesus said that no, stone, that no two stones would be left upon it on, uh, on themselves in, te- in, the, in the temple. But he very clearly in Matthew 24 was saying that the Gentiles would be the ones that destroyed it. All right? I do not believe that they were speaking against the temple at all. Again, remember, they're Jews. They have no idea that the Gentiles are going to be part of the church yet. They're not going to be speaking against the temple. This is why we know that this is a false witness. Because they have no reason to be speaking. There's somebody speaking, you know, remembering that Jesus said the temple's going to fall and be taken down and remember the charge against Jesus. He said that the temple would be torn about and then three days later he'd, he'd, he would rebuild it and he was talking about himself, not the temple at that time. So they're remembering the charges against Jesus. They're reiterating the charges against Jesus, and now they're aiming them at Stephen. Even though Stephen didn't say that, and I'm sure he wasn't even teaching it in the temple. And then he says, and he's speaking against the law. Again, at this point in time, the, the uh, Jewish members of the church, which is all there is right now, they're still following a kosher diet, they're going to the, the synagogue on Sabbath day, they're, they're offering their sacrifices, they have no idea of not following the law. They no idea, not even a remote thought in their mind. They know the Messiah has come, they know if they confess him as their savior that they will go to heaven. So in that one sense, yes, maybe they are making people not feel as strong about the law. Because the law is designed to show us that we're sinners. And so they're beginning to understand grace a little bit. But at this point in the church, they're not fully understanding grace. It's not until Paul really starts teaching to the Gentiles that they start really pushing grace. All they know is that God sent a son to die. But all they're thinking of is we've got to follow the Messiah. We're choosing to follow the Messiah. And so when we see this whole statement, we know because of the period of time that these guys are absolutely false. Now, if they had given this accusation 15 years later, we might have said, uh, maybe we can understand where you're coming from. Grace is being taught. You know, we're not, we're not pushing them... You know, the, the Gentile Christians aren't being told to be circumcised. They aren't being told to follow the, the laws of Moses. All right? So in, a, in 10, 15 years from now, they might have been able to make this, make this a almost valid argument. But Stephen is a Jew. He is not going against Moses. He is not going against the temple. But they are having problems. They're, they're seeing their power ebb. It's going away from them. If they, if they keep raising this you know, group, you know, I don't know how many people lived in Jerusalem at that point, you know, but we know that there's over, over 10,000 believers already in the church. How big a population of that was there? Let's, let's say that there was 100,000 people in Jerusalem that are sitting at about 10% of the population of Jerusalem and growing daily. They're scaring the leaders. They're losing people to this crazy group of people that say the Messiah has come. And when we argue with them, we can't beat them. <laughs> they're, they're quoting scriptures that, that we don't understand where they're, where they're coming up from. They're, they're, they're following good arguments. And then we see, and I love this last part, and all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him, Stephen, saw his face as it were the face of an angel. Now, there's some debate on what exactly this means. But the idea is that I kind of believe they looked at him and he was unflappable. He was confident. He had great peace. 
Now, some people actually believe that his face shone like, the, like an angel. I don't think that's what they're trying to say. Well, there are people that believe that. Don't get me wrong. There are people that really think that he, you know, he'd been so one with God, so full of spirit that he glowed. I think it was more the confidence they looked at him. Here's these guys attacking him, viciously attacking him, quoting, you know, saying all these lies about him, and he is just sitting there very quietly, very peacefully. All right, um, and we and we and we see here a confidence in him, a calmness, a fearlessness. This is the great mark of these guys in this in this period of time. They're fearless. You know, I think they truly understood. You know, what's the worst they can do to me? They can send me home. <laughs> you know, and this is the problem that we have in our day and age. We forget that if we die, it's a great blessing. We get to go with the Father. If we get beat, we bear the marks of Christ upon our body and we can show, hey, look at this. I've got, I've got bruises and beatings and, and, and attacks because I stand for God. Either way, we win. If we stop thinking that we must not have problems. All through the Bible, we know that problems are coming. Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you. And so we sit back and say, God, you know, when we suffer... Thank you. Thank you that I was, you felt I was worthy of suffering. And thank you that I passed the, the suffering if we pass it. And God, forgive me for failing, but thank you for making me worthy of suffering. But they, they had a totally different attitude. And Stephen is just there listening to people attack him. Very peacefully. And you know, this is very interesting. When we let God defend us, we can just sit back and say, okay, God... You're going to give me the words to defend. You're going to help me defend. And let God be our defense. And Stephen is going to give a powerful defense for, for what he believes and where he stands. And some of it's going to be very attacking on them. He's going to tell them that they murdered Jesus and that you know, they murdered the Messiah. He's going to be very front, front forward with them. But at this point, he is just being quiet. And the best thing that we can do when we're being attacked is stay quiet until God says, speak. Because I don't know about all the rest of you, but I know that when I try to defend myself, I always mess up and I, may, I stir the pot and make it worse. And in most of the contentions that I've ever had to be the mediator for, that's exactly what's happened. People have spoken and made problems worse. And Stephen is just sitting back. He's, a, he's calm in the midst of all this chaos. And they're looking at him hearing all these accusations against him, and he is not getting angry. He is not responding. He's just sitting there. A calm place in the middle of a storm. You know, and we know, you know, and one other thing I did want to bring up, you know, in Acts chapter 11, we see Peter going to Cornelius, and he's the first one that speaks out to a, to a Gentile, and immediately when he gets back, they're going, what the heck did you go to, go to a Gentile for? And he has to tell them about his vision and all of the stuff. He has to defend himself by what God, and they accepted it. Okay, Peter was told to go to some Gentile. Paul goes out and preaches to the, to the, to the lost world, and, the gen, and he comes back in Acts, in Acts 15, and they're going, and basically this is where they're going, we got a lot of Gentiles in the church, what do we do with them? <laughs> And there was a big debate, okay? When we get to chapter 15, we'll talk about it, but there was a big debate. Do we make all these Gentiles get circumcised and follow the laws of Moses? And I just want to go, I want to look in chapter 15 real quick. We're going to get there later on, but let's take a quick look at chapter 15, starting at verse 24. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words subverting your soul, saying, ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. In other words, the disciples are saying, we didn't tell anybody to give this. He goes, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men with you to our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're sending them to Barnabas and Paul who have gone through a lot of troubles. 
All right? They faced life and death. We send therefore Judas and Silas, and shall tell them the same thing by mouth, for it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit to you to lay upon you no greater burden than is necessary. In other words, you're not going to have to follow all the laws. You're not going to have to go through sacrifices. And here's what they told him to do. You should abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication to which you yourselves keep yourselves and you shall do well, fare you well. Now, there's the statement from the leaders in Jerusalem is stronger than what Paul's going to teach later on. Right? Paul's going to say, okay, they released you. you know, he's never going to release them from fornication because he's not releasing them from the law. But he's not going to go into this idea of don't eat, don't eat things that are offered to idols. Because Paul understands it's just offered to a stone. So it's not a problem to him. You know, and the idea of blood and strangled things that becomes another one, and we know that that has fallen away over the years from the Gentiles. Fornication did not change. <laughs> all right? Why? Because there is a thou shalt not. <laughs> the rest of it all kind of falls down through God uh, and says, where are you with this? And so we see here the attack that's being made against him, and he just sits there. How hard is it to just sit there when you're being attacked? Yeah, and he is just patient, and they note the calmness. I think when they saw that, they're looking, he's not even looking irritated. He's not even looking like there's a problem here because it got their attention. He is at complete peace. He is calm. These guys are making all kinds of serious accusations because if they can prove blasphemy, he's going to get killed. He's going to get killed anyway, even without their proof, but they if they can prove it, this is, a, this is a capital offense that he's coming before them on, that he's being charged, and he's sitting there serene, unwavering, as they're making all these accusations against him, and just sitting there with peace. He has the peace that passes understanding that, we're t that Paul tells us about. Our life should be just that, so peaceful that when people look at us, it's going to make them wonder, you know, are you, what's, you know, what do you have that I don't have, or are you just plain insane? You know, and they're looking at him and saying, and they know he's not insane. He's argued with these guys, and he's been winning. You know, he's been making presentations in the, in, the, in the temple for a while. They know that he's not insane, and yet he's peacefully sitting there, not even being riled by all these attacks and witnesses that are leading, that can lead to his death. And that's where we're going to leave off today because we're not going to get into his defense. <laughs> Lord, we just thank you for the day. Lord, help us to learn to be peaceful and serene. Help us to lean upon you and your spirit in all that we do. And we just thank you and ask you to guide and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.